0: I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Now, a common phrase in churches today is seeker sensitive. That usually means that both the service and the sermon are designed with the seeker in mind. And by the seeker, they mean the unchurched or the unbeliever. And unfortunately, too many evangelical churches take this concept too far with the approach of giving the customers what they want, they end up with topical messages on how to have a happy life. And they avoid talking about sin or judgment or really anything controversial. In fact, I have heard messages that could have just as easily come out of the Reader's Digest as the Bible. Now, I am... All four being seeker sensitive, if by that we mean loving people and accepting people and meeting people where they are and making people feel comfortable in our church. But when it comes to the message, while we are to speak the truth in love and while we are to season it with grace, you can't. Trick somebody into the kingdom of God. You can't soft sell the gospel and impact anybody's life because watered down truth is no longer truth. Now, I bring that up because as I studied our passage for this morning, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 to 14, I realized that this is a seeker sensitive sermon. This is God's version of seeker-sensitive because it tells us six things that we should be seeking. So if you are a seeker, seeking God and seeking truth and seeking the meaning and purpose of life, here's your checklist of things to seek. Now, I probably should add that when you become a Christian, you don't stop being a seeker you actually start being a seeker. You see, before I was saved, I didn't seek God. I ran from God. And I know that you didn't seek God either because Romans 3.11 says nobody did. It says there are none who seeks for God. In fact, the more I understand salvation the more I realize that it is far more about God finding me than it is about me finding God. But after I become a believer, then the Bible tells me I am to seek. It says, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Seek and you shall find. Keep seeking the things above. If you're a believer, you are a seeker. And so in this seeker-sensitive sermon, there are six things that we are to be seeking. Number one is the right pattern. Look at verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate. In other words, seek to be like them. Now, who do you seek to be like? You say, I want to be like Mike. I dress like him. I wear his shoes. He's my hero. He's my role model. I just can't dunk like him. I want to be like Britney Spears. I want to, you know, I want to be like, is it Bono? Yeah, I've got his poster on my wall at home. That's who I want to be like. Well, who does this verse say you should be seeking to be like? Well, it doesn't give any names, but it gives us four characteristics. First of all, it says those who led you. People who had a spiritual impact on your life. Maybe it's someone who led you to the Lord. Or maybe it's someone who led you from being a spiritual baby toward maturity. Second characteristic, those who spoke the Word of God to you. Now note this one. A true leader is one who speaks the Word of God. If you're, if you're looking at a person you say he's a real leader or she's a real leader, they're not a leader unless they are speaking the Word of God to you. It's those people who taught you. Those people who challenged you with the Word of God. Those are the people that you ought to be imitating. Now, that probably rules out a few of the posters you've got on your wall at home. Maybe you should replace those posters with a poster of your Sunday school teacher or your youth pastor. I understand you're making some posters, aren't you? Third is those who have a noticeable result of their conduct or literally an outcome of their life. Now he's probably talking here about people who have finished the course. You can look at your life and you can, or their life and you can see the beginning and you can see the middle and you can see the end. And then fourthly, those who are people of faith because he says imitate their faith. You see, he's not telling you to wear clothes like they wear or wear your hair like they wear their hair. He's saying you're to imitate their faith. Now, how do you see faith? Well, he tells you in verse 7 because he says their conduct. Consider their conduct and then imitate their faith. You see, you can see their faith by the way they conduct themselves in their lives. By the way they handle the blessings and trials of life. Now, it's interesting to me that three times in this 13th chapter, he refers to leaders. In verse 17, he's going to tell us to obey our leaders. In verse 24, he's going to tell us to greet our leaders. On those two occasions, he's obviously talking about present leaders. But here in verse 7, he says, remember them and consider the outcome or the end of their life. So he seems to be talking about past leaders leaders here, possibly even leaders who have already died. And he says you are to remember them. Think about them. Think about their conduct. Think about their lifestyle. And then consider the result of their conduct. That word consider in the Greek means to look at again and again. You're to keep looking at the outcome of their life. Now, obviously, he's not talking about a physical outcome here, because we learned at the end of chapter 11 that not all lives of faith end up the same way. Some people of faith end up living in caves and holes in the ground. Some people of faith end up getting stoned and sawn in two and put to death with the sword. So what is the outcome of their life? That we are to be considering. Well, the fact that even if they got sawn in two, they didn't quit. They finished strong. They grew to spiritual maturity and ultimately they received the crown of righteousness that Paul says is rewarded awarded to everyone who loves his appearance. And then he says imitate their faith. Vincent Stryga said, People won't remember what you say as much as they will what you are. Are you seeking to model your life after the kind of people described in this verse? You know, one of the ways I would suggest doing this is to go and read biographies of great Christians of the past. Not, not a, not a, sports hero who became a Christian two years ago, but a reformer or a great preacher or a great missionary, read about their life from beginning to middle to end and imitate their faith. You see, you should have a poster of Martin Luther or George Mueller on your wall at home. That's the right pattern we're to seek. And then secondly, the right person. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, godly leaders are important, but a godly leader is not the person that we seek. We're told in verse 7 to imitate their faith. They are the pattern. But the person that we seek is right here in verse 8, Jesus Christ Now, many of us have this verse memorized. This is one of the easy ones to memorize if you want an easy verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's it. And this is one of those verses we have memorized and we oftentimes quote this verse, but I'm not sure we really understand how it fits in the context to which it's given to us here in Hebrews chapter 13. So let me suggest some ways it fits in this context. Number one, in contrast to Judaism which is temporary and transitory, Jesus Christ remains the same. You see, that has been the theme of this entire book of Hebrews. That Jesus Christ is superior to everyone and everything in the Old Testament. That all, that all that Judaism has to offer, Jesus Christ is superior. Priests came and went. Aaron was the first priest. He handed it off to his sons Nadab and Abihu. What happened to them? The Lord put them to death for disobedience. Then it went on to Eliezer who gave it to Eli. Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who the Bible says were worthless men. There's a priesthood for you. That's the priesthood of, of, of Judaism. But Jesus Christ, our high priest, abides forever. Prophets came and went. Jesus Christ has no successor. Kings came and went, but Zion's king is Forever second way it fits into the context. Even though the people referred to in verse 7 are gone, Jesus Christ remains the same. You know, sometimes people become enamored with some godly preacher and they're devastated when that man dies. But you see, the primary person in Christianity is not your preacher. People used to ask me, well, what are we going to do when your dad is gone? Well, what did we do? We carried on because even after a godly teacher dies, Jesus remains the same. Third way, this fits into the context. Jesus was the one who sustained those people in verse 7. And because He is the same yesterday and today and forever, He will sustain you. You say, you mean that I can walk in the same walk of faith as George Mueller walked, as Hudson Taylor walked, as D.L. Moody walked? Yeah, because you've got the same Lord. And then the fourth way it fits into the context is going to become evident when we get to the next verse, because in that verse, he's going to warn against false teaching. So he says, Jesus doesn't change, so you're not to be carried away by any strange teachings. Now, When it says Jesus is the same, what does that mean? Well, go back to Hebrews chapter one with me for a moment, because there the author uses that same phrase. And I I think we see how he uses it. Hebrews chapter one. The first word in Hebrews chapter one is God, and it's talking about God speaking and God speaks throughout this whole chapter. And if you look at verse um, verse 5, it says, For to which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son? This is God the Father speaking. And again, I will be a father to Him. Verse 6, And when He again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, and then you come down to verse 8, But of the Son He says, this is the Father speaking of the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. There's a great... Verse for the deity of Jesus Christ, God the Father calling God the Son, God. The Father's still speaking when we come down to verse 10, and notice what he says. He says, You, Lord, speaking of Jesus, speaking to Jesus, you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. The heavens are the works of whose hands? Jesus' hands. Then notice verse 11, speaking of the heavens and earth, they will perish, but you remain and they all will become old like a garment and like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same. There's our phrase and your years will not come to an end. When it says that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, it's a confirmation of His deity. It's telling us that the person that we are to be seeking with all our heart is the preeminent, eternal, never-changing God. And that's someone to seek. Let me just add a footnote here. You know, some people misuse this verse in Hebrews thirteen eight. They say that this verse shows that Jesus always does things the same way. You ever heard somebody say, well, if, if Jesus did it that way then, then Jesus must do it that way now because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Well, that's just not true. Because if you look in the Old Testament, you'll see that He instituted animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. But today, there are no more sacrifices. He called for His people to be circumcised in the Old Testament. But today, circumcision is a dead ritual. He established the dietary laws in the Old Testament. But today, He has done away with them. You see, this verse isn't about Jesus' methods. It's about Jesus' person. And character. It means that He is the eternal, unchanging God, and He is the person we are to seek. Then the third thing we're to seek is the right privilege in verse 9. How do you seek God? Or better yet, what gives you the privilege to find Him? What is the key that opens the door to access to God? Now, there are a lot of answers to that question. So the writer begins with a warning in verse 9. He says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. You ever noticed that false teachings are always plural? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 22 warns against the teachings of men. 1 Timothy four, one warns against the doctrines, plural, of demons. But in contrast... God's teaching is always singular. 2 John 9 talks about the teaching of Christ. Singular. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 says, The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Apostles, plural, had a singular teaching. You see, truth is a perfect unit. It begins with God and it ends with God. Now, we live in a day when that concept is not real popular. People today like variety. We are a culture committed to tolerance. If I were to say to you, based on the Bible, I am right and you are wrong, people would say that that smacks of pride and intolerance. Pastor Leith Anderson told of a visitor to his church who said he liked... Reformed theology, the inerrancy of Scripture, and reincarnation. What? You, you can't like all of those things. But see, today, truth has been reduced to personal preference. I like vanilla, you like chocolate. I like pepperoni, you like sausage. I like Jesus, you like Buddha. It's really a matter of preference. What alarms me is that a 1991 George Barna survey found that only 23% of evangelical Christians expressed a strong belief in absolute truth. Now, if only a quarter of evangelical Christians even think there is such a thing as absolute truth, then they're not going to be real concerned about false teaching. Now, what is the strange teaching that the writer has in mind in verse 9? Well, look again, he says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Now, when he says foods here, he could be thinking about the dietary laws in the Old Testament that told the Jews what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. Or he could be referring to eating the sacrifices that were brought to the temple. So the strange teaching was, you have to be saved by faith in Jesus, plus you have to keep the dietary laws. Or you have to be saved by faith in Jesus, plus you have to do the sacrifices. The false teaching in the church at Galatia was this. And you can read the book of Galatians and you see it mentioned over and over again. The false teaching there was you have to be saved by faith in Jesus, plus you have to be circumcised. You see, invariably, false teaching goes astray on the doctrine of God's grace. That's why he says we're to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. False teaching says it's grace plus. It's faith plus. The truth is it's grace, period. You see, to add any human works or any human merit to Christ's death on the cross as a means of salvation is heresy. And yet this idea of salvation by works is ingrained in the fallen human heart. When I ask people, you know, if you died today and went before God and He said, why should I let you into my perfect heaven? What would you say? And I would probably guess nine out of ten people tell me I would say to God that I'm doing the best I can. That's works. Even more subtle is to say I would tell Him I believe in Jesus and I'm doing the best I can. That little and always bothers me. I believe in Jesus, but that's not quite enough. So I also do the best that I can. You see, that's not grace. How are you seeking God? Is it by grace plus? Or is it by grace alone? Is your privilege based on what you do? Or what Jesus did? You see, if you're going to seek Him and find Him, you have to come to Him by grace, period. As the Reformers clearly proclaimed, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Fourth point is the right place in verses 10-13. to Where do we seek and find Him? Where do we go? Look at verse 10. It says, we have an altar. Now, who's we? Well, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. He says, we have an altar. Now, what's an altar? Well, in the tabernacle, there were two altars. One was rather small, and it stood right outside the veil to the holy of holy places. It was the altar of incense. The other was much larger. It stood inside the outer court. It was the altar of burnt offering or the brazen altar. It was seven and a half feet square, four and a half feet tall, had horns on each corner where they could tie the animals to it when they sacrificed them. It was the place where they took the animals and sacrificed those animals. Now, this is obviously the altar that he's talking about here, because when we get to the next verse in verse 11, he mentions the bodies of the animals. So the writer says, we have an altar. Now, where is our altar? Well, some churches build an altar at the front of their building and they say, we have an altar and here it is. Some people call the front of their church the altar and they have an altar call. I'm not going to condemn all that, but is that the altar that he's talking about here? When he says we have an altar, what is it? Well, in the earthly tabernacle, the altar was the place where people made sacrifices to the Lord. It was the place where blood was shed on the day of atonement for the sins of the people. It was the place where a righteous, angry God was appeased by the shedding of blood. Now, if that's what happened at the Jewish altar, and verse 10 says we have an altar, then what is our altar? Well, our altar is the place where a righteous... Angry God was appeased by the shedding of blood. And where is that? It's Calvary. Now, his emphasis here is not on the physical. He's not saying we have a hill outside Jerusalem. He's saying we have a place where God has accepted a sacrifice, an eternal sacrifice. And that place is not the brazen altar of the old covenant. It is a new altar, and we don't go there physically. We go there how? We go there by faith. And then he makes the point that our altar and the Jewish altar are mutually exclusive because the rest of verse 10 says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, God in the Old Testament had given Aaron, the high priest, and his sons the right to eat certain portions of the animals that were offered on the altar of burnt offering. And the priests really represented the people. And so by eating the sacrifices, they were identifying themselves with the sacrifices. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 18, Paul says, look at the nation Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar. So to eat the sacrifice was to share in that sacrifice. So what's he saying in this verse? He's saying if you hang on to Judaism and eat from that altar, then you are cutting yourself off from the true altar. And I might note the obvious, and that is that we don't eat from the sacrifice of our altar physically as the Jews did theirs. That was the contrast in verse 9. He says, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. They ate physically. We eat spiritually. We are established by grace through faith. So we have an altar and those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat from it. Why not? Look at verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. The priests could eat certain of the sacrifices offered, but Leviticus 6.30 tells us that they couldn't eat any animal whose blood was brought into the holy place. And Leviticus Leviticus chapter 4 is a great example of that. They took a bull and killed it. And the blood was taken by the priest and sprinkled seven times in front of the veil, and then sprinkled seven times on the horns of the altar of incense, and then the rest was poured out at the base of the brazen altar. And you know what they did with the body of the animal? They burned it outside the camp. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, to the Jewish mind, the camp was holy. And outside the camp was unholy. In Leviticus 24, the blasphemer was stoned where? Outside the camp. Numbers 5.3, anyone who was defiled was put outside the camp. In Numbers chapter 12, when Miriam got leprosy for seven days, she was put outside the camp. In Deuteronomy 23, it says that filth was deposited outside the camp. So he's talking about something that's outside, it's unholy, it's apart from Judaism. Why is he making that point? What's he trying to tell us? Look at verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Jesus was our sacrifice. His blood is what sanctifies us. And his blood was taken into the holy place, at least figuratively, because... Hebrews chapter nine and verse 12 says neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And where did Jesus suffer? Verse 12 says outside the gate. Was Jesus crucified in the city of Jerusalem? No, he was taken outside of Jerusalem to be crucified. What's his point? Verse 13 so let us go out to Him outside the camp. You see, if you are going to go to Jesus, you've got to go outside the camp because that's where He is. And to the Jewish readers, He's saying you've got to leave Jerusalem and leave Judaism if you're going to come to Jesus. Now, obviously, it doesn't literally mean the city of Jerusalem because in Acts chapter 1, and verse 8, He told the apostles to start in the city. Of Jerusalem, But the tabernacle and the camp and, and eventually Jerusalem represented to the people of Israel the heart of Judaism. So he's saying you, you're going to have to come out of that religion of works and outside the camp if you're going to have access to God because you're going to have to have come to the true altar, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that this is the point where people get offended? You know, if you have a religion of works, people don't get real upset. They can kind of buy into the idea of good morals, good works, and loving one another. But when you start talking about the cross, people get offended. Because the cross confronts human pride. As a sinner, I don't like to hear about the necessity of shed blood. But he's telling us in these verses, without shed blood, without the cross, outside the camp of man's religion of works, there is no salvation. So where do you seek and find God? Well, you don't attach Jesus to your old religion. You have to come outside of your own religion And come to faith in Jesus Christ. You have to come to the foot of the cross. That's the altar. That's the place. Now move to point five. The right price. Now notice this. Verse 13. So let us go out to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. Now, this is the part of the message that some preachers don't want to tell you. There is a cost involved in going out to Jesus. You will not win any popularity contests by coming outside the camp and going to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, you can expect persecution. Jesus promised it in John 15, 20. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's a guarantee. Now, he's not talking about the kind of persecution that comes because you're obnoxious. If you're obnoxious, I may punch you. In fact, if you notice, the reproach that we're to bear is not really aimed at us. It's aimed at Him. We're to bear His reproach. You say, well, why would you say that we're to seek that? Why would we seek to suffer Jesus' reproach? Well, what we do is we seek to be where Jesus is and to be like Jesus. And in that context, we're going to get the reproach. But let me help you understand something. If you go back to verse 9 and you're strengthened by grace, what are you strengthened for? You're strengthened to handle the reproach. You're strengthened by grace. In fact, that is, you understand that every blessing that you have comes to you because of everything that Jesus endured on the cross. When you understand that, you are strengthened by grace and then you're ready to sign on to say, I will bear the reproach that comes with being identified with Jesus Christ. You'll be like the apostles in Acts chapter 5 who after they were imprisoned and beaten, we read this in verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. There's an attitude. They were rejoicing that they suffered, that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. that's the right price. And then sixthly and finally, is the right perspective in verse 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Now to his Jewish audience, he's saying, you've left Judaism and you've come outside the camp to Jesus, but that's alright because we don't have a lasting city here anyway. And this... This truth was accented just a few years after Hebrews was written because the city of Jerusalem was literally destroyed in 70 A.D. He says, we don't have a lasting city here, but we are seeking the city that is to come. That's the right perspective. Now, how does this relate to you and me? Well, we have been called out to go to Jesus. What have we been called out? Well, for you personally, it may be a system of religion that you have to leave to come to Christ. A system that's based on works and not grace, that you have to come out of that literally to come to Christ. But for all of us, it's what influences those systems, and that is the world. We're all to come out of the world, not literally. We don't become monks, but we are to leave the world in terms of its morality And my affections and my commitment. I'm to be in the world, but not of the world. And he's telling me in this passage that that ought to be easy for me to do because I don't have a lasting city here anyway. Bible tells me that one day this world is going to pass away. In fact, that one day this world is going to be burned up with fire. In Hebrews chapter 12, he told us at the end of that passage that God is going to one day shake everything you see and it's all going to be gone. It's not going to last. Now, we naturally have a tendency to put roots down here. Psalm 49.11 says of us, their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. We tend to put our roots down, build a house, think that's forever, put our name on it. This is going to endure I'm always uh, humored by the fact I see I, I see stadiums called by somebody's name honoring some guy and then he you know he's died and they're honoring him and then a few years later they've changed the name of the stadium because they forgot about that guy. We tend to think we're going to go on forever. He says we don't have a lasting city here. We have been called to be strangers and aliens on this earth. And what are we to be seeking? Chapter 10 and verse 34, he says, a better possession and a lasting one. Chapter 11 and verse 16, he says, we're to be seeking a better country that is a heavenly one. And in 1222, he says, we are to be seeking the city of the living God. And then let me close by reminding you that there is a price for us. We are following a rejected Messiah. Christ is rejected by the world, but one day He will reign. And so the question is, are you willing to stand with Him now and suffer so that you can stand with Him then and reign? That's the seeker-sensitive sermon. Are you seeking the right pattern? Godly people who live by faith, are you seeking the right person? Jesus Christ, the eternal, unchangeable God? Are you seeking the right privilege, access to God by grace alone? Are you seeking the right place outside of man's religion at the cross of Calvary? Are you seeking the right price? Are you willing to stand with a rejected Messiah and bear His reproach? And are you seeking the right perspective? Nothing here will last, but I am seeking the eternal home that God has planned for me.